morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Um, can I ask you, if you have a Bible, please turn to John chapter 14. Um, I'd like to read to us this morning from John 14, uh, verses 1 to 6, and then, and then uh, for us to explore this together, I want to preach from this passage. And the title I've given to this morning's message is Comfort for the Troubled Heart. Comfort for the Troubled Heart. John 14, verse 1. This is Jesus speaking. Speaking to his disciples, speaking to us this morning. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Undoubtedly, today, we live in an age of anxiety and worry. It seems that no amount of money or food or possessions or affluence will make people immune to having troubled hearts. People, as we look around, are troubled by many things, aren't they? Both uh, inward things and outward things. Troubled outwardly by concerns of inequality, rising crime, the cost of living, international conflicts, global warming, and many more things. People troubled inwardly by feelings of fear and distress and loneliness, by the deepest questions about life and meaning, about death and what comes after it and how, if at all, we can be prepared for it. Every day, despite surface-level appearances, despite how many people look, we are surrounded by troubled hearts and troubled people. And oftentimes, our own hearts are included in that number. Just because we're Christians doesn't mean we're immune to being troubled, to feeling troubled. So we, and we see that here, of course, in the disciples. Here at the outset of John 14, they are experiencing perceptible anxiety. It is written all over their faces. And it's not difficult to understand why. Jesus has just been explaining to them in the previous chapter all that is going to happen to him that someone is going to betray him, that Peter is going to deny him, and that soon he's going to be taken from them and they won't be able to follow him where he's going. And so the disciples, they are understandably confused and uneasy and uncertain. They are worried about what the future might hold. Most of all, they're afraid of being parted from Jesus. Now, when you stop and think about it, Surely Jesus really should be the one who is most troubled in heart here. He's the one that is now fast heading towards the agony of the cross. He knows what is coming. He is the one who has indeed been troubled in soul, John tells us. He's been troubled in spirit because of what he alone will soon be facing. And yet even on this night, he is the one who lends emotional support and spiritual support to his disciples. Even on this night, he's still the one who gives comfort and peace to his troubled followers. 
What a compassionate and tender-hearted Savior we have. Just see him here. And my friends, we can be certain if he carried so much concern upon his heart for his disciples on the night before his crucifixion, he surely carries the same deepest possible care and concern for our hearts and all of those troubles that we arrive with here this morning, this morning and are bearing up with today. He sees every secret sorrow within us, even the ones that we might ourselves struggle to name and put a label on. He sees every one of them. He keeps all our tears in a bottle. Not one troubled thought passes through our mind without him noting it, and his remedy for every troubled heart remains the same throughout the ages. That's what this morning's passage is about. This is a precious remedy against an age-old disease. This passage is the Savior's remedy for our troubled hearts. Beginning, first of all, there's three things in this passage this morning. Beginning, first of all, with the fact that Christ himself comforts us. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. This picture of a troubled heart, it pictures a heart that shudders and quakes and rocks within us. Like a ship that's being tossed to and fro in a stormy sea. Or like a building that's been shaken down to its very foundations by a series of earthquakes. But Jesus is saying, there is no need for your heart to quake or shudder or rock. It needn't be like the troubled sea within your chest. It can be at rest. I once had a Greek teacher... I don't remember much Greek anymore, but I once had a Greek teacher who, seeing the look of panic on our faces at the start of every Greek lesson, would start each session repeating Jesus' words here. Let not your hearts be troubled. And there was, a, there was a measure of comfort in him saying it, but nothing compares to the comfort of Jesus saying it. You see, it really matters who it is that is speaking to us here. I appreciated the sentiment of my Greek teacher. He knew we were worried. But Jesus can say it with unique authority and power. Do you see his credentials here? He says, believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus presents himself unambiguously here as equal with God. As the Son of God come down in human flesh, standing there before his disciples, speaking to us now this morning, he presents himself unapologetically as the true and proper object of our faith. Do you remember what the psalmist, King David, used to say in that famous psalm, Psalm 42? He spoke to himself. He said, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, my salvation. And now here is Jesus saying something almost identical to his disciples but adding hope also in me. Hope in God, hope also in me. Believe in God, believe also in me. The remedy then for all our heart trouble is nothing less and nothing more than faith in God and faith in Christ. The proper cure of all our heart trouble is faith in him. The medicine that the divine pharmacist will hand us over the counter for our heart trouble is faith in him. 
the life ring that will keep our heads above the water in the stormy seas is faith in him. J.C. Ryle writes, Faith in the Lord Jesus is the only sure medicine for troubled hearts. To believe more thoroughly, trust more entirely, rest more unreservedly, lay hold more firmly, lean back more completely. This is the prescription which our master urges on the attention of all his disciples. It's quite the claim and statement though, isn't it? Let not your heart be troubled, simply trust in me. But just think about the difference it makes knowing that knowing who Jesus is, who it is that is making this promise here. The difference between, again, anyone else in all of the world saying these words to us and Jesus saying them to us. Uh, Just imagine for a moment different people that might speak these words. Uh, You could imagine a stranger. uh, You could imagine a policeman, a teacher, a pastor, a close friend, your closest loved ones. And there might be increasing levels of, of comfort and assurance that would come to us with these different people saying these words to us. But they all pale in comparison to the confidence and the reassurance that comes when Jesus speaks these words to us. Let not your heart be troubled. For he is the word incarnate. The word become flesh. The the one who spoke the very universe into being out of nothing. When he speaks, things come into being that were not before. Shouldn't he then be able to create and speak into being actual, real, and tangible peace into even the darkest corners of our troubled hearts? We surely believe he can because we know this is the Son of God speaking comfort into us. We believe he can. We believe, we recognize this is the one Isaiah promised would one day come. The man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Come to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows up the hill to Calvary. The one who knows, not only knows our pain, but bore it upon his shoulders. The one who now looks at us with eyes of love and says to us, For you, for you I died And bore all your sins and sorrows far away, so that nothing would ever separate us again. This Jesus, this Christ, this Savior, is he who now says to us this morning, Let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in me. We can trust him. He speaks comfort to us. He speaks comfort into us. That is the first thing we see here this morning. But the comfort doesn't end there. No, Jesus would have his troubled followers experience more comfort still. He also wants us to know, secondly, that heaven is prepared for us. Jesus wants his disciples and he wants us to know he is preparing an eternal home for us. Now, I think it's fair to say that in one way or another, every human heart, every human soul longs to find a true home, a place where they fully belong, a place where we are fully known, a place where we are loved and accepted and feel truly at home. C.S. Lewis called it the inconsolable longing of every human heart. He said, there have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. 
It is the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable want, the thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work, and which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. We all have a longing for home. But without Christ, we will search for our true home all of our lives and never find it. We will look for it in a thousand things and places and relationships and experiences and never find it. With Christ, however, well... He came to tell us about our true home, the home that he is preparing for us. First of all, he calls it here, my father's house. My father's house. He's talking about a place, the place where God lives. Now, God, of course, we know is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He doesn't need buildings or walls or a roof in which to live in. He doesn't need a literal house. But heaven is his special dwelling place. Heaven is his house. It is his home, which means it's also his son's true home. And it's the true home of all of us now who, through Christ, know God as our Father as well. Uh, We understand this, don't we? If you think back to when you, particularly when you were a child, or some of you kids will know this as well. You remember a friend saying to you, uh, or maybe you say to a friend, do you want to come over to my house? Do you want to come over and watch a movie or or play, play Nintendo with me or Or, yeah, come over to my house. Come over to where I live. And can we ever imagine our friends turning around and saying, well, just a minute there. Your house? Your house? Don't you mean your parents' house? I think you'll find they own the house that you live in. No, of course not. They they understood. Our friends knew. Oh, your house. Yeah, sure. Your parents' house, that's your house. That's your home. That's where you belong. And yes, I'd love to come round. The true home of God's children, the place where we are unconditionally loved, where we truly belong and are forever welcome, is our Father's house in heaven. It is our Father's home that is our home. We sometimes talk as well, don't we, about acquiring, finding our forever home on earth. Maybe we move a few times. We keep moving house. We're, we're looking for something bigger and better. And finally we say, yeah, this is it. I think this is, this is our forever home. This is our home. But no house or home on earth is our true home. It's all temporary. Our forever home is our Father's house in heaven. And when finally we arrive there, we will know this is it. This is all that I've been longing for. Finally, at last, this is my home. And then Jesus adds, in my Father's house are many rooms. There are many rooms in this house. Now, now what are we to do here? Are we to picture this palatial property, a great mansion, a mansion with many different bedrooms? Is that it? Are we to picture that there is a room for each of us with our name on the door? Now, again, he's not talking about anything so small and enclosed as an actual building. But in speaking of many rooms, what Jesus is saying is that there is a place for each and every one of us to live there with him. Revelation 7 says that in heaven there will be a great multitude that no one can number. Genesis 22 says that Abraham's children will be as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. But Jesus wants us to know, yes, there will be innumerable brothers and sisters there. 
But there will be ample provision and space for us all. There is no capacity limit on heaven, as some, some might have us believe. Some cults would have us believe. There's no, there's no capacity limit. There's no sign. You know when you're on a bus and it says, only this many people can sit on the bus and maybe a few more standing. There's no sign like that in heaven. J.C. Ryle again says, There will be room for all believers and room for all sorts. For little saints as well as great ones. For the weakest believer as well as for the strongest. The feeblest child of God need not fear that there will be no place for him. None will be shut out but impenitent sinners and obstinate unbelievers. Let me assure you today, there is room in heaven for you. Whoever you are, wherever you have come from, whatever you might have done, whatever you might be wrestling with in the present, if you Turn from your sin, if you have turned from your sin and put your trust in Christ, he will make his Father's house your eternal home forever. There is room enough in heaven for us all. And we can be certain of this because Jesus then says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, I love, first of all, what Jesus does here. I love how he reminds them again just how completely he can be trusted. He's maybe still seeing the, the worried look on their faces. He wants them to know how much he can be trusted. They might not be able to picture heaven. They, might, they can't go ahead and check. Am I, is there really a place for me there? Am I really expected? But Jesus simply assures them, you can know this. You can trust me on this. You know I never lie. You will get there safely. If there was the least uncertainty about it, I would tell you. But what instead I have told you is I go to prepare a place for you. I wonder if you've ever been invited to stay at somebody's, uh, somebody's house, stay in their home. Maybe it was a family member, uh, a good friend. Maybe it was just even a holiday home, but done really nicely. And when you arrive, you'll find that the, the owner has gone to great lengths to make the place ready for you, to prepare for you. Maybe there's home-cooked food on the table, uh, fresh milk in the fridge, a whole selection of tea and coffee for you to choose from. There's a bedroom made up for you with fresh flowers on the bedside table. There's maybe complimentary chocolates on the pillow. Or maybe you're the one who loves to go the extra mile and, uh, and do this for your guests when you have them in your home. You love to go to great lengths to prepare for their arrival. Do we think that Jesus will take any less care in preparing our eternal home in heaven? Preparing the home for the ones he loves? That he who fashioned the stars and created every good and glorious thing in all of creation, that he who now says, I go to prepare a place for you, a true and lasting home for you, that he wouldn't prepare the most incredible place. What a home it will be because Jesus is preparing it for us. Richard Phillips says how wonderful it is to find a room prepared after a long journey. Our mediator and saviour has carried our names into heaven and made a reservation there for us. No Christian will ever appear in heaven either unknown or unexpected. For Jesus has prepared a place there for each and every one of his own. 
And then we can be assured of this all the more as we realize Jesus is not just talking about preparing heaven for us. He's also talking about preparing the way to heaven for us by going to the cross for us. For the disciples here in John 14, on the, on the eve of his crucifixion, he's explaining to them, I have to leave you now in order to prepare a place for you there. I have to go to the cross for you now to make my Father's house your home. Only by going willingly to his death could he win the right for every sinner to enter into heaven. Only by becoming our sin-bearing sacrifice could he enter into heaven as our perfect high priest, opening a new and living way for us to draw near to God now and to live with our Father in heaven forever. Christ has removed through the cross every barrier that stood against us entering in. Our names are already known in the courts of heaven today, but even before we get there, we are expected. Our arrival is already warmly anticipated. Our room is prepared with men and angels and God himself ready to welcome us in and welcome us home. What comfort then this should bring to us on our journey through life as we journey through this fragile and ever-changing, unpredictable world. Here in this world, we are but pilgrims and strangers, wanderers, but already Christ has prepared a place for us, our true and everlasting home. And then finally, finally, as he talks about heaven, the best thing of all about heaven is that Christ will be there with us. Verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Heaven ultimately is being where Jesus is. It's not just being in a place. It is in that place with a person. We will never be alone there. Not only will there be so many Christian brothers and sisters there for us to enjoy, but our Savior, our elder brother, our Redeemer shall be in the midst of us forever. We shall see him and know him and be with him there forever. This is why Paul in Philippians 1 says, yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Paul knew, and he wanted the Philippians to know, nothing compares to being at home with Jesus. Spurgeon says, uh, he quotes to him, he says, An hour with my God, says to him, will make up for it all. So it will. But what will an eternity with our God be? Forever to behold him smiling, forever to dwell in him. Abide in me, that is heaven on earth. Abide in me is all the heaven we shall want in heaven. He is preparing the place now, making it ready for us above, and here below making us ready for it. Courage then, brethren, courage. Let us not fret about the way our heads are towards home. We are not outward-bound vessels, thank God. Every wind that blows is bringing us nearer to our native land. However stormy the sea that takes us there, this is every Christian's bright and happy destination. 
our sure and certain future to go home and be with him. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. He's with us now to speak those words of comfort to us. Because of him, heaven is prepared for us. And thirdly and finally this morning, the way there is known to us. Verse 4, he says, you know the way. You know the way to where I'm going. Those are fateful words, aren't they? When you're going on a journey. You know the way. I know the way. Either either it's the, the car driver telling his passenger, look, would you please stop directing me? I know the way. I don't need you to give me directions. And then half an hour later, they find they're on a completely wrong road. Or it's someone packing us off in the car on our own and telling us, you don't need me to come with you. you you'll remember the route once you get going. You'll know where you're going. The thing is, actually, though, the, the disciples right now are so troubled by all that's happening to them all that's happening around them, they're not sure they do know the way. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? But Jesus, of course, as always, knows their hearts better than they know their hearts themselves. And he assures them, you do know the way. What we see here, first of all, is that we often know and believe more than our fears and doubts might suggest. Sometimes our fears and our doubts, they cloud the faith that is still there underneath. And Jesus often sees more faith in our hearts than we might think we personally possess. He sees past all of our doubts and our forgetfulness and sees the seed of faith beneath. J.C. Ryle again. Christ looks graciously on the little knowledge his people possess and makes the most of it. The plain truth is that all believers are apt to undervalue the work of the Spirit in their own souls and to fancy they know nothing because they do not know everything. Many true Christians are thought more of in heaven while they live than they think of themselves and will find it out to their surprise at the last day. One old writer compared believers in Thomas's frame of mind to the person who's hunting for their keys and hunting for their wallet when all along those things are right there in their pockets. Thomas, says Jesus, you know the way. You already know the way. I am the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, here there is the greatest possible assurance and there's also a warning but first of all the assurance Jesus who 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 by the way is making here the clearest possible assertion again to being God by saying I am claiming God's name for himself Jesus is the way to the father Jesus is the sure and certain path to heaven He's not just one spiritual guide along the road to get there. He is the very road beneath our feet. He is the door for the sheep, the narrow gate, the the wide and welcoming entrance through whom sinners of every kind can enter in and draw near to their God. He says he's the truth. He is the one who perfectly reveals God and what he's like and how we can know him. He is the fulfillment of all God's promises to us to rescue and redeem a people for himself. And he says that he is the life. 
He himself is the giver of life, of eternal life. He laid down his life for us so that we might have life through him. Jesus is all we need. His words here are words of assurance to even the the weakest and the frailest and the most doubt-ridden of believers. Whoever knows and trusts in him knows and possesses all that they need to take them safely all of the way home and there enjoy everlasting life with him. Brothers and sisters, we know the way if we know Jesus. Now then for the warning. Up to now I've been very much, and Jesus is very much, addressing genuine Christian believers. These words of Jesus to his disciples are of the greatest possible comfort. Some of the most comforting words in all of the Bible. They are meant for all who know and trust him. But there is a grave warning here to those who don't yet know him. Jesus is the only way to heaven. The only way of salvation. No one comes to the Father except through him. Christianity is not merely one viable option amongst many. It's not one viable religion amongst two or three or four or a thousand others. Jesus' claim is utterly exclusive. The only way to God is through him. Peter says the same in Acts 4 verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is only one way to be saved. No other religious belief system, no amount of religious sincerity or human ingenuity, no piling up of our efforts and good works can provide a way for our souls to be saved and open a way for you and I to get to heaven only through the crucified Jesus Has God provided a way? But it is all the way we will ever need. He is all that we need. As it says so helpfully in one of my study Bibles, some people may argue that this way is too narrow. In reality, it is wide enough for the whole world if the world chooses to accept it. Instead of worrying about how limited it sounds to have only one way, we should be saying, Thank you, God. for providing a sure way to get to you. And it is a sure way that is held out and offered to you as well this morning if you're here and you're not yet a Christian. Jesus' words are an open invitation to you to come to him and trust him as your saviour for the very first time today. And then these words of unparalleled comfort to every Christian believer, let not your hearts be troubled, could very soon be words addressed to you as well, along with all of the promises that are laid up here. Believe in God, Jesus says. Believe also in me, and I will take you home. And for all of us here this morning, all of us who know him and love him, let's remember who it is that has comforted us here today. Let's put our faith afresh in him. Let's remember that because of him, heaven, our true home, awaits us and is assured for us. For he will one day return for each of his own and take us safely and gladly home to be with him forever. Revelation 22, the very last and final words of the Bible end like this. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. 
And we say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the comfort and the assurance and the promise of your words to us here in John 14. Father, may these words of our Savior, these words of your Son, Lord, may they take root and live in our hearts again today. May they bring, Lord, great comfort to our souls, giving us faith in the midst of every trouble, peace in the midst of every sorrow, and joyful expectation in this sure and certain hope that we will one day see you face to face and forever live in your house, our true home in heaven with you. Lord, this morning we say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.